Good morning, everyone. Everyone out there in the lobby, come on in. It's time to get started. Get your hand out. Come on now. Come on. He doesn't need any handouts. It's all up there. I think we've got 10 in here. I think that's at least a quorum. Let's, get, let's go ahead and get started. <laughs> I'll uh, pray for us, and then we'll begin. All right, let's pray together. Father, we give thanks to you for the opportunity to uh, come back to this study once more on how to study the Bible. We pray that uh, during this time that you'll be glorified, that you'll uh, give us tools uh, and help us to understand those tools a little bit better even this morning to help us to understand your word better. Uh, that, that's our goal, so that we might uh, turn around and take that uh, understanding and uh, help others to love you, know you, be built up in their faith. And I pray for your blessing on our time now, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, last week we considered some uh, principles, or uh, what I call uh, navigational guides uh, that help us interpret uh, the Old Testament, the New Testament. So can anyone uh, name those interpretational guides, those navigational guides that uh, we talked about in the Old Testament? What were they? That was one of them. Yes. The second one was covenants. Canon was one of them. Yep. That was the third one. Context was the first. Yep. Three more. Character of God, character of man, and Christ. All right. So this week we're going to be looking at the anatomy of the Bible. So we need to think a bit about genre. So could, can anyone define genre for me? Do you want to take a stab at defining genre? Yes, go ahead. Type of scripture? Type or description of something? Okay. It's a category. Okay. All right, good. Anyone else? Yes. So certain rules attached to a particular style. Okay. Anyone else? Good thoughts. Good thoughts. Um, genre is a way of classifying something according to its type or style uh, rather than its specific content or storyline. Uh, biblical genres are normally identified by examining a book's style, structure, form, tone, context, and the literary techniques 
throughout the work. Uh, in the verse on the front of your handout, Luke 24, 44, uh, Jesus himself points out three genres, um, psalms, poetry, prophecy, and historical narrative, the law of Moses. Um, and we find him doing so in other genres of writing as well. Um, a gospel, and this example is one written by Luke. So, um, and just a, a note here as we begin, I, I believe I said something at the beginning of this class when we started, but I want you to know that this, all of this, how to study the Bible material is coming from uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church and their core seminars, and I'm adapting it for our use. In some senses, sometimes I have to do a lot of adaptation, um, sometimes littler, uh, little amounts of adaptation, but it's coming from there. Um, so, just wanted you to know that once again uh, as we begin. So, what are some problems that we might run into if we don't consider genre as we read our Bibles? Some of the problems that we could run into. Okay, impacts the interpretation of the text. Any other thoughts? Yeah, so the interpretation lead, could lead to a faulty application. So understanding genres is important because the impact uh, it has on our study of scripture. So before we ever get into the actual text of a biblical passage, we need to understand what literary genre the text is in so that we can properly observe, uh, interpret, and apply that text. So today we're gonna fly at a high altitude uh, like some of those uh, planes at the air show yesterday. Well, they are actually at a low altitude. Um, anyway, as we look into this, and so we're, um, we won't be able to explain a lot of the nuances of each genre, but we're going to give you a good view of them. So we'll look through some uh, passages of scripture, but I want to encourage you to dive into these uh, more on your own time. So let's go on to point one on your handout. What are the biblical genres. And so the genres that we find in the Bible are uh, typical genres found throughout history. And so you've got that chart there breaking down uh, the genres of the Bible's books. Of course, even though most books are primarily one genre, several books contain elements of other genres within it. We'll point out a couple of those um, as we go along today. Now it's important to note that the biblical authors themselves understood their writings to fall into certain genres. Uh, sometimes uh, the authors will even tell us this is what the genre is. Um, we're going to look at that more towards the end. There's one a clear one I want to show you. What's more is it's clear that some of the, the biblical authors constructed their writings with the influence of the cultural literary forms that were present around them. For example, the, the Ten Commandments reflect the, the structures, uh, the structure of trees that were often used by the Near Eastern kings in the same time period. 
course, that's God-ordained uh, so that they might have um, something to understand it in, within its context. So lots of genres, many genres, one storyline throughout the scripture. So we have to remember that the same Holy Spirit, the same God who um, inspired the Bible, inspired all of these men to write down. This means that even though there's a, a diversity of genres, there's a single unified storyline, this makes the Bible an anthology and it has multiple authors, about three dozen human authors, diverse genres, yet it's comprehensive and cohesive and it's many stories that tell one story. So before we move on to the next point, any questions on just the basic genres and understanding of it? Let's talk about narratives and histories, narratives and histories. So as we walk through these, um, notice how we spot the genre. We, we might think that a religious text would be all about dogma and rules, um, yet a substantial part of the Bible is, in fact, history. Now, why is that? Well, because the Christian faith is all about the things that happened in real life. In fact, it's specific historical events didn't happen. The, um, if they didn't happen, the, the whole thing falls apart. Christianity isn't simply a philosophy. It is a faith based on history. So we believe that Jesus was a real man in real time, in real space, even though he was not limited by those realities he did live on earth at a certain time. Jesus was born. He lived. He died. And he was resurrected. And all the, these things are historical facts. So if any of these facts were found to be untrue, the Christian religion would no longer be valid. So Paul talks about that at length in his um, treatise on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. Also, the Bible is a historical record of God's dealing with his people and the establishment of his kingdom. The historical record revolves around several key events in history. Um, you'll um, got them listed there, creation in the fall and the abdication of man's rule. Uh, number two, God's judgment on wayward humanity and the renewal of God's intent for man and the, and the flood and uh, God's uh, reinstituting what he wanted man to do, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Number three, God's taking of a people for his own possession through whom he would bless all the nations. And um, several key events with that, the protection and proliferation of his people in Egypt, the exodus from Egypt, the conquest of the land, the establishment of a kingdom, the exile in Babylon, and then God's provision of a righteous king in Jesus Christ and then God's establishment of the church. These are all his, history and the, the truths that we read in God's word are all put out in historical narratives so that we can understand uh, these things. But beyond simply telling us what happened, uh, God tells us why it happened. The events important, uh, the events here that are uh, important are important to the grand storyline of redemption and in the history of the Bible. So, so how should we read and profit from narrative history in the Bible? 
um, biblical histories and narratives are rich sources of study that display God's faithfulness to his plan, to his purpose, uh, to his people, to his unchanging nature. So this genre, however, is not intended to record and explain every detail of every event that occurred, nor does it present events simply for us to mimic their characters. Matter of fact, there's a lot of characters you would not want to mimic. You would actually want to do the opposite. Um, instead, historical narrative provides all that is necessary to study and um, understand the, this great grand narrative of Scripture that is God saving his people and judging his enemies through Jesus Christ. This grand narrative. Also in the, the scope of historical narrative, uh, you'll see that you got most of them are Old Testament books, but there's also the book of Acts that's there as a historical narrative. Um, it's found in the New Testament. Luke begins Acts where the gospels leave off and records how a ragtag group of disciples becomes the Christian church and is the foundation of the Christian church. So Acts is the story of the gospel penetrating the Roman Empire uh, despite stiff opposition through uh, the boldness of witnesses drawing um, on God's spirit. In Acts, we find um, in these, this history, we find uh, speeches, missionary speeches that call uh, people to believe the gospel. And we also have uh, defense speeches. You see that multiple times with Paul, explanations of the Christian faith in Acts. All right. That's historical narrative or law narrative uh, within the Old Testament. Now, with that said, let's move on to uh, talk about the genre of wisdom and poetic writings. Um, so why are, why are we looking at these two things together? Uh, the poetic books of the Bible are the uh, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. They're, they largely have elements of a poetic structure and they contain much in the way of what we call wisdom literature. So they're a mix of both. But we should ask ourselves, what is wisdom literature? Uh, wisdom literature is essentially instructions for successful living, reflections upon the reality of human existence. Broadly speaking, we see two types of wisdom literature in the Bible. First, proverbial wisdom, um, short, pithy sayings that state maxims, principles, uh, rules for personal happiness and welfare. Um, Proverbs 15.1 for a specific example here. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So short, pithy saying, uh, maxim, a principle, uh, rule. Um, and then there's uh, not only proverbial wisdom, but there's speculative wisdom. There's monologues and Ecclesiastes, uh, for example, or dialogues, um, and Job, um, 
and they attempt to delve into such problems as the meaning of existence and the relationship between God and man. Uh, wisdom literature contains both moral substance of true wisdom and the intellectual explorations of wise men uh, seeking to understand the fundamental problems with human nature, human existence. The starting point for understanding Old Testament wisdom literature is actually Proverbs. Uh, the wisdom of Proverbs contains morality, the knowledge of how to live properly. It has a theological foundation, the starting point uh, for all wisdom is what? Fear of the Lord. The reverence for God and the fear of the Lord. That's the beginning of all wisdom. So the, the book details the fundamentals of morality, the, the virtues of integrity and discipline, justice, common sense, um, all of that. And to show by way of contrast the failure in life that awaits for the fool who doesn't acknowledge these truths. Uh, the book is strongly uh, didactic. That is, it's geared toward um, moral instruction. Even how it's designed lends itself to being more easily memorized than other passages of Scripture. Uh, with Proverbs as your starting point for wisdom literature, you begin to complement it with the other wisdom books that offer the same truths but from different perspectives. Um, so kind of like the booster rocket that sits on a rocket ship uh, that work together with the main thrusters to get it into orbit. So uh, the books of Ecclesiastes and Job serve that, uh, the central book of Proverbs and this wisdom that we need. Uh, Ecclesiastes is a contrast to the wisdom claims of Proverbs um, as it evaluates life through the, the lens of skepticism. Uh, here you have King Solomon reflecting the wisdom of a man who has lived long and seen the world from all perspectives. He describes the grief and the sadness that's in the world uh, from the perspective of an observer, uh, noticing that anything lived in this life apart from God is all vanity, work, knowledge, power, pleasure. It's all empty under the sun. Uh, Job, on the other hand, contrasts um, the wisdom claims of Proverbs through his own awful suffering, um, his lived experience. Job grasps the problem from within, from the perspective of the sufferer, and wants to help you understand wisdom. All right, so before we talk about poetic literature, any questions about wisdom literature? Let's move on to poetic literature. Much of the Old Testament um, is poetic in spirit and structure. We often find passages of elevated poetry and the use of powerful imagery. Um, the, the, the language, uh, many people love the King James Version of the Bible because it's the, the literature, the words are so lofty and grand. And, um, and so one way in which we can quickly tell if scripture is poetic is by noticing an overlooked feature in, in our English Bibles. Um, if you look at the book of Psalms, uh, for example, you'll see that the typeface and the spacing is different um, than the rest of the, the books of the Bible. As a result, you're going to see wider margins. Uh, this, this formatting is deliberate. 
uh, the, the parallel lines help us to see the flow of the text, especially since Hebrew poetry is unlike English poetry in significant ways. So, um, so there's some main features here of poetic language that we want to talk about. Um, and I'm going to encourage you to, to turn to some places here and just look at it with me. Uh, so the Hebrew language was an ideal instrument for expressing poetic speech. Its simplicity of form allowed for a combined intensity of feeling and pictorial power and allowed great play um, of the imagination. Some of the features that we see are figures, metaphors, uh, hyperboles, and um, they're all extremely common throughout the uh, this, uh, the scripture, uh, turn to Psalm 91. I won't spend too much time here, but you see a lot of um, imagery here. He who abides in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the, sh abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to Yahweh, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And the chapter continues to, to, to go on like that, talking. This imagery um, is sometimes really intense. Um, the normal unit of Hebrew verse is typically a couplet or two or more with parallel lines. Turn back to Psalm 27. Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Yahweh is the strong defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? So you have this um, couplet or pairing that happens uh, that speak of similar things in parallel lines. And on the other hand, Hebrew poetry is rhythmical, uh, which is one of its distinguishing features. So uh, rhythm in, in Hebrew poetry, however, is not confined to the balance of accent or beat in a line. The meaning of the words and their position in the line are significant, uh, a feature called parallelism. And there are three basic types of parallelism. Uh, the first is synonymous parallelism. Turn to Psalm 19. Uh, synonymous parallelism is where the thought expressed in the first part of the verse is repeated in the second part in a different but equivalent term. So uh, Psalm 19.1 uh, shows this pretty clearly in, in that verse. The heavens are telling of the glory of God and the expanse is declaring the work of his hands. So you have synonymous parallelism there. The thought in the first part of the verse is repeated in the second part of the verse. Uh, the next uh, parallelism you have is antithetic parallelism. Antithetic parallelism. Turn to Proverbs 13. Proverbs 13, verse 9. 
the light of the righteous rejoices or is glad, but the lamp of the wicked goes out. So this is where the thought in the first part of the verse is contrasted with its opposite in the second part of the verse. And then you have, so you have synonymous parallelism, antithetic parallelism, and now synthetic parallelism. Look at Psalm, um, Psalm chapter 3. Verse 5, I lay down and slept. I awoke, for Yahweh sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who all around have set themselves against me. Um, this is where the idea expand, expressed in the first line of the verse is developed and completed in the following lines. I laid down, I slept, I awoke, and I will not be afraid. So why, why poetry? Why all of this poetry? Uh, poetry conveys greater meaning beyond simple facts. Consider the information in the following statement. Here, I'm going to make a statement. Jesus Christ, who never sinned, died for sinners to pay the penalty that they deserve, now, is, that's, that's a true statement. Would you, would you agree with that? Um, but contrast that with the statement in Isaiah 53 and verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. You have this continuing concept, this poetry that makes it um, so much more meaningful. Of course, it is divine in nature. It's, it's clear uh, the example statement doesn't come close to the perfect word of God. But do you see the point? The imagery conveys feeling uh, something tangible, something vivid and haunting and something worth remembering. Uh, case in point is all of the psalms. The psalms were meant to be used for the purpose of worship. They were songs. Uh, they were to be sung with musical instruments, musical accompaniment. Many are private prayers, while others were composed for public worship, especially hymns of thanksgiving sung at the tabernacle or temple. Many were written to be remembered as they... Um, and which is also sometimes lost in our English translations of the Bible, they were written with a Hebrew uh, letter in the alphabet at the beginning of them. Several of them are written that way so that it's easy to remember um, these mnemonic um, um, aspects of language, easy to remember. So it's in the Psalter that the soaring spirit of Hebrew poetry rises to a level never achieved by Israel's uh, pagan neighbors. For the Hebrew worshiped God in spirit and in truth, and he, he did so, as he did so, he was giving an expression to a personal experience of the living God within his soul. All right, any questions about uh, poetry and 
before we move on to our next set of genres. All right. We have a few more here. So the next is the Gospels. Gospels. All four of the Gospels provide a comprehensive understanding of Jesus and his life, and yet each of these books were originally written to stand on its own and independent and sufficient accounts of Jesus and his followers. And though we can't dive into each book, we're going to make a few general comments about all of them. Um, So the Gospels, they are uh, historical narrative in some senses, um, but they're also um, of a genre um, often referred to as bios. And the Gospels mirror this genre from the ancient world called bios, and it's an ancient um, biography, unlike modern biographies that that trace physical, psychological, personal development. Um, ancient biographies focused on key points uh, in the life of the individual, key events uh, of that person's life and their teaching. And that's what the gospel does um, with the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, also, a factor in understanding the, the gospel's genre is chronology. So while, while the gospels are historical accounts, they're not always arranged chronologically. Uh, some are organized topically. For example, Mark tells of five controversies in a row in chapters 2 through the beginning of chapter 3, and they're spread out between chapters 8 through 12 in Matthew. So they're not right in a row. And you'll, you'll also note that Luke, if you go and read his gospel, he sought to write down things in consecutive order, whereas the other gospels may not have. Uh, so this is, this is the way bios were, uh, were often written at that time. If we assume the Gospels are written like 21st century uh, biographies or histories, we're going to be confused. So they're not always uh, chronological. Um, Also, there's a harmony within the Gospels. So while each of the Gospels offer varying points of view, they all make the same point that Jesus is the promised Messiah who died for our sins. However, some of them have been grouped together. Uh, a couple, a few of them. So does anyone know what that group is called? This grouping of some of the Gospels together. The what? Well, the synoptics. Synoptic. The synoptic Gospels. So you, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all a part of the synoptic Gospels. They overlap in many places. Uh, these three tell the story of Jesus from the ground up, gradually revealing the evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. And then you have the Gospel of John. Uh, John tells the story from heaven down, right? It begins with uh, Jesus Christ uh, as the Word, uh, the Word who um, is the pre-incarnate Word, becoming flesh. John differs from the synoptics because 
his approach, it's a, it's approached the question of who Jesus is from a different point of view. So you have the synoptics and then you have John. All right. Um, so those are just some general statements about the gospels. So any questions about that? move on to the epistles then. Uh, the epistles deal with the establishment of the churches and all of their issues, uh, just like we have our issues, right? Uh, so what is an epistle? Uh, it's just another word for a letter, a letter. Understanding how to study these letters is significant since they constitute 21 out of the 27 New Testament books. Uh, Paul wrote 13, John wrote 3, um, or 4, um, well, the, Revelation's not a, an epistle, sorry, he wrote 3, uh, Peter wrote 2, and James and Jude, Jesus' brothers, each wrote 1, and the Hebrew, um, the author of Hebrews is unknown to us. So epistles are generally structured in three parts. You have an opening, you have a body, and then you have a closing uh, in each epistle. Uh, the, the parts vary widely depending on which letter we're looking at. So we need to do uh, careful study, carefully trace the flow of thought in each individual letter. Um, the key thing about epistles is that they were all written after Jesus died, after he rose again, and after he ascended into heaven. So they're all looking back on the, uh, the events of Christ's life as completed, which no other books in the Bible except for Revelation can do. Um, so as a result, they've played a, a major role in the formation of Christian theology and understanding throughout church history. So they're also crucial to our understanding of the Old Testament as well. Um, when we study Old Testament allusion, allusions and citations in the epistles, we can come to see how God fulfills his Old Testament promises in Christ. So how do we interpret epistles? Well, for the most part, um, interpretation's fairly straightforward since they're written from the same side of Jesus's earthly life as we live in. Uh, the one challenge you might face is that they were all written in a specific context that we are not privy to. For example, uh, 1 Corinthians seems to be written in response to a letter received by Paul from the Corinthian church, um, and yet we don't have that letter. So we don't know exactly what they were asking Paul, but multiple times throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, he comes back to concerning what you wrote about this subject or this topic. Um, he's responding to their questions. So sometimes reading this, these kind of letters feels kind of like, um, have you ever been sitting there with your spouse or your friend and they're on a the phone conversation, you can't hear what the other person's saying, but you're hearing what they're saying? Sometimes it feels like that when we're approaching an epistle. We're hearing what one side of the conversation, we don't hear the other side. 
Um, so it feels like constructing a full conversation by listening to just one part of it. So there are a couple of things to keep in mind when interpreting an epistle. So understanding of the context is very useful in interpreting these letters. So in our next test class, we're going to talk about some of the tools that you can use to better help and determine what that context is um, for these particular epistles um, or particular book. So for now, remember that the opening of the letter often helps set the context for the entire um, letter for why it was written. And at the same time, these letters uh, speak with amazing power right to our context today without much need for interpretation. It says if God caused them to be written knowing we'd be reading them today, which of course he did. So they're important for us and we can learn from them within our own context as well. Any questions about epistles? All right. Let's talk about understanding prophetic literature. Um, when, when people think of prophecy, they tend to think of foretelling the future. Um, but that's not all that prophecy is in the Bible. Actually, prophecy also has a component of foretelling, uh, speaking forth truth and calling out um, the people's sin, as well as the truth that God had already revealed to his people. So there's a foretelling aspect of it and a forthtelling aspect of prophecy. Um, prophets had the function of shining uh, God's light of truth on Israel's disobedience. It, they highlighted how their sins were against God's law. And in some cases, they tell how their sins were predicted by previous prophets previous prophecies. Uh, some would say that the prophets are actually God's prosecutors, where they're taking God's law and prosecuting the people for violating it. And, and we do ourselves a, a disservice by ignoring the one book of the Bible that almost all of the Old Testament prophets depend on. What, what book is that? Almost all of the Old Testament prophets use this book, if not all of them. It's the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, Israel is told about the blessings that come with keeping God's law and the curses that come with breaking it. And so when the prophet declares God's judgment upon Israel for their idolatry and their adultery, they're essentially reprising the curses from Deuteronomy. But then the prophets do also turn to foretelling the future, looking forward and promising oftentimes salvation, but also looking forward to the future and promising judgment. If you don't turn, you will be judged. Admittedly, prophecy can be a difficult genre to read. Uh, given its, its numerous literary forms, it's uh, symbolism and writing styles. Also, uh, their predictions can be difficult. 
because they have multiple levels of fulfillment. Uh, for example, Isaiah chapter 7, uh, a virgin is giving birth. And it seems to be fulfilled in uh, the short term in Isaiah's fiance eventually having a child. But we also know that it's fulfilled in the Virgin Mary giving birth to Jesus. Um, in this sense, prophecies are um, sometimes they're like mountain ranges. Have you ever heard of this analogy? You're looking at a mountain range from a distance and you can see all of these mountaintops, but if you were to go to the mountaintops and go on the other side of the first mountain, there's a great length or span of distance between the first mountaintop and the second mountaintop. So oftentimes prophecy can be viewed in that way. Um, in your handout there, I've included eight tips for interpreting Old Testament prophecy, and I'm not, I'm not going to read through those. Um, those are for your sake, um, but... I want because I mentioned some of them already and went over some of them, but I did want you to have some of those principles and guides. So, are there any other questions about uh, prophecy before we ta start talking about a particular book of prophecy, uh, Revelation? Yes. Yeah, I think it's just the manner in which it's, it's written um, at the particular time about something that would occur. I, I don't know that it's, um, yeah, from our perspective, it is past tense, but from their, uh, their perspective, it's something that's written uh, about what would come and what would happen, um, written in the past tense, like as if it's already completed. And we know that in the scope of uh, the truth of God's word, it was all providentially planned according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, um, as Peter says next, too. So, yeah, I don't know that I'm answering your question, and I don't know that I completely understand your question other than the, the tense in which the passage was written in. And there's other passages that are challenging to understand like that, not just um, a seeming, uh, well, yeah, a seeming dual fulfillment um, in the passage that um, the scripture will bring to bear if there is one. Yeah. Um, Passages like I mentioned last week, uh, like Psalm 22, here you have David writing about his time in the wilderness where he is being pursued. He feels forsaken, right? 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet when you get to the New Testament and you see uh, when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You go back there and you see all of these fulfillments of, you know, my tongue cleaves to my jaw, you know, he thirsts, right? Uh, you have all of these illusions. Now you understand it in a more fulfilled way or it's being applied to Christ where it also had a fulfillment in what David was expressing in his personal life at that particular time. But God wanted it to mean something far more. So, yeah, some of those going on. Any other comments or questions about interpreting prophecy? That's a great question. We're going to talk about that when we talk about interpreting Revelation. So hang on to that question. Hopefully I can answer some of that when we, when we get there, which we're here. So let's talk about that. Um, Revelation is probably a, a, a subject, subject to more um, commentary, speculation, interpretation, than any other book in the Bible. In this book, we find everything from angels to the lake of fire to serpents and dragons and creatures that we really can't even uh, imagine in our head, eyes all around, you know, covered of a creature covered with eyes. So what are we to make of these things? Um, some fearfully read Revelation as the book where God finally unleashes his wrath on mankind while others simply avoid it because it's too confusing. It's just not important enough to be deliberately studied. You know, what's the purpose of it? Uh, but Revelation is God's word. And as God's word, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, it is profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for a training in righteousness. So it's important for us to remember, um, given that revelation can quickly become a mere matter of debate about the role of ethnic Israel or the millennium, uh, these matters can be helpful to look into. And if you would like more information on these topics, um, you know, we, you can go to our um, statement of faith, what we believe on our, um, um, on our website. You can talk more, we can talk more about it then if, uh, I don't know, did they, did we record your systematic theology when you went through it in Sunday school, Greg? The, yeah, the Bible, Bible survey and the systematic theology. I think you did both, didn't you? Okay. Huh. All right. But there are some resources on our website if you want to study it more. 
Um, but Revelation has some great themes that can encourage any believer. And if we keep these, these, some of these tips in mind, I think we'll better grasp these themes. So um, here are three tips to help you understand Revelation. Uh, first of all, understand the background. Understand the background. By the, by the time that John writes Revelation, uh, the gospel has been preached uh, throughout much of uh, the Asian province, um, as well as much of the Roman Empire. Many um, have heard and believed and are now Christians. So they all recall what Jesus promised right before he ascended, and that is that he was going to return and establish his kingdom. Uh, the church is looking for and longing for Christ's return, and they have been ever since the, the consummation of God's plan in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So, but, but the view of many at, at that period of time that Revelation was written, and we see this in, in the book of uh, first and second, books of 1st and 2nd Peter as well, is that nothing is happening. Christ isn't returning. People are becoming anxious. Um, as a result, wickedness is beginning to grow within the church. Um, persecution is on the rise. Uh, some are being conformed to the ways of the world. And some begin questioning um, God's uh, keeping his promise to, to return. Questioning his goodness. So this is the context in which uh, John writes Revelation. So if we're trying to understand suffering, if we're trying to understand God's sovereignty, um, if we're trying to understand uh, perseverance and endurance through tribulation and trials, Revelation is a wonderful book to go to for that. Um, we don't have to fear it. We don't have to mystify it. It's there to help us work through these things. So understanding its background. Uh, if you turn over to the back of your handout, number two is understanding its genre. Um, this book is, is prophecy with elements of other genres within it. Um, I did add it to the, the prophetic books uh, in the genre on your, the front of your handout. Um, but it does have its indications of um, epistolatory language, like it's an epistle. Um, that's within there. You have elements of uh, royal edict or command and what the uh, Spirit is saying to the churches. Um, uh, so, however, uh, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 1. The internal evidence within Revelation itself tells us what the genre of the book is. Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and keep the things which are written in it, for the time is near. All right, so there's your first evidence right at the very beginning of the book that it's prophecy. Now turn back to the last chapter of the book, in verse 22. 
verse 7. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 10. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Verse 18. I bear witness to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. And then verse 19. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. Do you think the book itself is clear on its genre? It's prophecy. Um, so at the beginning of the book, multiple times here at the end, we ought to take the book's word for itself that it is prophecy. Um, I, I would caution... Uh, caution us from classifying it as apocalyptic. And um, that's one of the adjustments that I had to make to this portion um, and previous portions is that they wanted to classify Daniel and Revelation as apocalyptic literature. Um, and so why is that, why is that concerning uh, from our vantage point? Well, um, I'm going to read a quote from Robert Thomas in his book with, with uh, Richard Mayhew, this book here, called The Master's Perspective on Biblical Prophecy. Um, it's also the same portion that's in this book. It's also in this book on um, evangelical hermeneutics. Uh, both of these are, are good books, um, which have much to say about genre within them. So, um, and I've read good portions of both this week and you can come down later. I'll have them down here if you want to look at them. Also brought um, the treasury of scripture knowledge that I referenced last week. It's also on the back of your handout if you wanted to look at that. But I'm going to read a portion of what Robert Thomas says in this particular book. Revelation has often been classified as a kind of literature called apocalyptic but the category of prophetic is probably better, a better classification for the book. The book calls itself prophecy. If the genre were primarily apocalyptic, this might constitute a basis for interpreting the book non-literally. The preterist, tradition historical, continuous historical, and idealist approaches to the book have at times spiritualized the book in accord with the assumption that its apocalyptic style makes it different from other books. If the book is basically prophetic, however, only a literal interpretation will suffice. The symbols of the book lend themselves to literal interpretation with allowances for the normal figures of speech, end quote. So, just a caution about classifying revelation as something other than prophecy and opening it up for interpretation from another perspective. Um, the, the term apocalypse, or from where we get apocalyptic, that's actually the Greek name for the book, which means revelation or meaning to unveil. So Revelation was not written to confuse, but to serve as a clear unveiling of God's plan to bring judgment on, a wicked, on the wicked, to reveal Christ and the establishment of his earthly kingdom, and to bring uh, the faithful in Christ into his eternal kingdom. 
So number three, understanding purpose. This is the last bullet point, understanding purpose. And Patrick, I hope this kind of gets to your point. So Revelation was written uh, to provide blessing, right? He starts out by saying, blessed are you if you read this, the words of this book. So it's provided to provide blessing, encouragement, exhortation, hope, and an understanding of the culmination of all things in Christ. Um, last week, I talked about how the, um, the arrangement of books and their nearness to one another help their understanding. When you look at the, the last um, chapter of Second Peter, um, Peter, who, to whom is Peter writing? Well, if you remember from the, the messages that I um, have already given in, in regard to First Peter, he's writing to the, all of the churches in Asia Minor, Pontius, Bithynia, Cappadocia, um, Galatia, all, all of those. And where are the churches that John is writing in, uh, in uh, Revelation? All in Asia Minor. So all of these places that Peter's writing is the same place that John the Revelator is writing. And uh, he, Peter, at the end of Second Peter, he talks about he doesn't want people to be uninformed about with God, you know, a thousand years is like a day, a day is like a thousand years. He wants them to uh, understand that all of it's going to melt with a fervent heat and he wants them to be um, encouraged. He wants them to persevere. Um, what kind of people ought you to be um, because of this, right? Um, uh, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest you, having been carried away by the error of unprincipled men, fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Right. So the purpose is to provide this understanding and this encouragement and the culmination of all things in Christ. So keeping these things in mind helps us to be careful readers, not just of the book of Revelation, but of the entire Bible. So next week we're going to uh, dive into specific interpretive tools that will help our own interpretation. I'm sorry, I don't have time for questions, but if you have any, you can come up afterward and we'll talk about it a little bit more. But let me pray so we can be dismissed and you can, those of you who have kids can go get them from the nurseries in the Sunday school. Father, we give thanks to you for uh, your word. Thanks to you for the various ways in which you communicate your truth to us in the different genres. I pray, Father, that you'll use uh, the truths um, that we have talked about this morning to help us further our understanding of your word. Uh, Father, I pray that you'll be glorified in, in and through um, this instruction, knowing that the goal of our instruction is love and the building up of one another's faith and to provide hope. And Father, I pray that our instruction does just that, and that's the fruit of all that we are doing. We pray this in the precious name of Christ.